All right, if you have your copy of God's Word, turn to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews. All right, was that a yep? All right, that means we're getting back to Hebrews. I'm glad you're excited because it's Hebrews chapter 8. I don't know if anybody goes yep to Hebrews 8, but uh, you will maybe after the talk. Um, we have spent uh, the last four weeks in a series called Whole Life Discipleship, something we do every year. And it, it was just a uh, great time of the Lord speaking specifically to us and through His Word uh, as a community. But we, uh, it's where we find ourselves 95% of the time is preaching through books of the Bible. And uh, we do that, and I'll share why we do that even here in a little bit. Uh, but we'll be systematically going through the whole chapter of Hebrews chapter 8 this morning. And so stand with me in the honor of reading God's Word. And the word of God is this, verse 1. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. It's talking about Jesus. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, they serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look forward for a, to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with them, the house of Israel, after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest." For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so we've spent uh, four weeks now outside of Hebrews. And so I want to remind us... Uh, of just how complex, and I probably in that reading, that text, how complex of a book Hebrews is. Like uh, Hebrews is very complex because it has all these different theological concepts, these intricate relationships between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, but at a fundamental level, a fundamental level, Hebrews is actually a very simple book. It has a simple message, and it's been behind us the how many ever months we've been teaching through it. The point that the writer of Hebrews is making is this. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. So in all of its complexities, and as deep as, as even we'll go today, the point is very simple in Hebrews and will be week after week after week. Jesus is better. And, and to also, this, this is piggybacks off of our whole life discipleship series, right? When we talked about mammon, or like last week when Sam uh, talked about uh, our bodies, right? 
What we're trying to get each other to believe as Christ followers and as disciples is this, is that Jesus is better, that his way is better, his design is better, his word is true, and everything he has proclaimed is absolutely supreme over everything. And so today, uh, we're going to press back into that idea that um, the, 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 the supremacy of Christ reigns, you just sang it, right? It, it reigns above everything. And, and, and the topic today is a deep topic. But I pray that you'll hear the, the very simple point from Hebrews 8. But I want to start with asking you a question. Um, if you had to write down, and I, w- I would encourage you as we go through Hebrews 8, we're going to go through it pretty systematically, so keep your Bible open, keep a pen and paper beside you. If you had to write down on, uh, in your notes five words, the, fi- the top five words that come to mind as it relates to Christianity, being a Christian, what would you write down? What comes to mind? You don't have to answer it out loud. Just, just think about it for a second. I uh, had an opportunity this week. Our, our, our men's retreat was away in, in Colorado. We flew back in uh, yesterday. And I sit, we were sitting there at the airport asking some of the guys, hey, what, 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 what are the top five words? And uh, by the way, the things that you write down probably aren't, aren't wrong at all. So I'm just, just go with me here. And uh, we heard things like, I heard things like uh, gospel, right? It's a good one. Jesus, love, the Trinity, grace, mercy, um, resurrection, the cross. I want to submit to you a word today from Hebrews chapter 8 that I think probably needs to be in our top five. If I had to guess, it probably wasn't in any of ours. And the word is covenant. Covenant. This is the, the theme of Hebrews chapter 8, that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. Now, covenant is not a word we use or is in, a, in our vernacular very often. And probably the words that you wrote down are the top five are, are probably more in your vernacular even. Uh, typically, where we see covenant, even culturally speaking, is, is where? It's, it's at a wedding. And most time, that, that wedding is probably a distinctly Christian wedding if they're talking about it being a, a, a covenant. And so let, let, me, let me begin by just simply defining what is the word covenant at the most basic level. And, and hear me, like, I'm going to need you to pay attention pretty well because we're, we're going to go, we're going to go a little, we're going to press in a little bit on this, okay? So, so let's pay attention. Covenant. Covenant simply, and this comes from the guys uh, at, at the Bible Project. Uh, this is their definition. I think it's really good. Uh, it says, entering a formal relational partnership to accomplish a goal. Entering a former, formal relational partnership to accomplish a goal. That is baseline what a covenant is. So when we talk about a, a marriage covenant, right? We're talking about a certain covenant. Um, when we're talking biblically, we have to understand that our Bible is divided into two covenants. So if you, if, if you look at your Bible, like, like when I look at mine, the first page is before you hit Genesis, what does it say? It says Old T- Testament. Testament. Somebody said covenant. That's not what yours says. It says Old Testament, right? But here's the cool thing. The word testament is Latin, right? It's a Latin word that simply means, now you can say it, covenant. So when you look at your Bible, how we read our Bible, how we understand our Christian faith has to be through this understanding of covenants, that we have an old covenant and a new covenant. That's what Hebrews 8 introduces to us. And so this is critical for our faith, right? The word covenant or this idea of covenant actually ties in the whole storyline of the Bible. And you'll see this today from Genesis to Revelation. 
You see, God's covenant promises are what drives this whole story that we're a part of, right? And it's central to the Christian faith. It's the story. This, this book is the story of God's faithfulness and our unfaithfulness. You ever wonder why, like, the Bible's so long? Have you ever wondered that? Like, I remember asking, you know, a, a prof one time. I was like, man, this just seems like a lot when it could have been really condensed and just told me straight up, right? And, 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 and I think he made a good point. He was like, no, here's what it needs. It's repeated over and over and over again by our God. I'm faithful, I'm faithful, I'm faithful, in spite of our failing and failing and failing, right? This is a story of a covenant-keeping God and a people who cannot keep their end of the covenant. And so what Hebrews 8 does today is that it gives us the covenants in contrasting views, Students, you're probably very familiar with this on your tests or quizzes in school, right? Do they ever say to you, hey, compare and contrast these two things, right? And you know this, and you're, I'm like, oh, got to compare and contrast them. Well, here in Hebrews 8, it contrasts the two covenants, right? The old covenant with the new covenant. And so when I say the old covenant, all right, not just talking about the generic covenant definition I just gave you, talking about something very specific. And so I'm going to give that to you again today as well in a definition. Here is the old covenant. The old covenant was the promise of God to the people of Israel that he would be their God and they would be his holy people, constituted by his law and sealed by blood sacrifice so that they might extend his loving reign to the world. Okay? That is the old covenant. The, the, the audience, remember the audience of Hebrews? They're Jewish Christians. And so they've got this stuff down. Like when, when they talk about covenants and all of these different things, like they understand this. We don't so much, Right? And so we need to set up the framework to understand something like Hebrews 8. And so let's, let's talk through the contrast here. The first contrast is found in verses 1 and 2, right? And the first contrast is this. The old covenant priesthood, the old covenant priesthood was mediated by mortal earthly priests. The new covenant by an immortal heavenly high priest. We have talked about this in Hebrews three times about Jesus being the great high priest. And here again, the audience in Hebrews, and thus us today, is being reminded of the difference between the earthly priest and the one true high priest. You see, he says that in verse 5, look at it at the end of verse 5, he says this is to contrast Jesus, to contrast to the Levitical priests, because they serve as, get this, a copy and shadow of heavenly things. Look at that in verse 5. A copy in shadow of heavenly things. Now, we're going to camp out on that for a bit in a second, but this is to compare the Levitical priest, the earthly priest, with the one true high priest. Now, remember that these Hebrew Christians, they were being persecuted, like severely persecuted. They were facing trials, and they actually have a serious persecution coming up for them. And so there is this tendency of them to want to go back to the old ways, like, if, if this is what it means to follow Jesus, if this is what it looks like, why don't we go back when it wasn't so hard? Why don't we go back to the Levitical laws? Why don't we, maybe even, why don't we pull a little, like, of the syncretism card? Why don't we sync these two things up? But, you know, what happens when you sync these two things up, Jesus tells us? You ruin both of them, right? Like, there's no syncing, syncing two things together with the gospel. It's Jesus is everything or he's nothing, right? And so this is a reminder of, hey, don't go back to those old ways, don't go back to the old law or, or the old covenant. And here's why. The earthly priests that you have are a shadow of the great high priest who came. And so this is what he's reminding us. Now, what I want you to key on here is verse 2. Verse 2 says that Jesus is a minister in the holy places. 
That word minister is the word, the Greek word where we get the word liturgy. Liturgy. How many of you have heard the word liturgy? Liturgy just simply means kind of an order of worship. Okay? So this is literally calling Jesus the great high priest, yes, but the liturgist, the one true liturgist who orders all the right worship perfectly. Now, the Parks Church here, we have a liturgy, right? You're participating in it right now. We, we sing together. We, we pray. We, we greet one another in fellowship. We open the word like we're doing. Next week, we'll take communion together. That liturgy, that, that order of worship shapes us. That's the point of a liturgy. And not just in its content, but in our participation in it, it shapes us. This is why, hear, hear me, and I am so thankful, and some, a lot of you are maybe tuning in and watching this. This is why you cannot replace the flesh and blood community. And I know we went through a, a really unusual, we're going through a really unusual past two years of that, kind of ebbing and flowing, all right? But there is, there is no replacement for what is taking place here in the gathering of the saints. That this, this is a liturgy that shapes us and forms us. And I would say as soon as possible, wherever you are, if you're like as soon as possible, we need to run back to gathering together so that it might shape us and form us. Like this is part of our liturgy. This is why later in Hebrews, it'll talk about not neglecting the gathering of the saints. Why? Because the author of Hebrews knows how powerful it is when, his people, when the people get together and we sing together. It edifies each other, right? When we come together in flesh and blood community and we sit under the teaching of the word right? It's, it's very hard to encourage or fellowship with someone when you're only watching it online with your kids and your PJs, right? I did it. I understand. It's like impossible, isn't it? But when we come here, we can see each other eye to eye in flesh and blood, and it's powerful. However, I want to say this, that our liturgy is still imperfect. This isn't a perfect liturgy. This doesn't form worship perfectly, Jesus is the one, the only one who does that. And that's why I love in verse two that it says that he's the liturgist. He's the one who perfectly shapes and forms our worship. He orders the worship. He orders his intercession in the sacrifice. He does that immortally, meaning without end, eternally. You see, the earthly priests, they were offering or ministering shadow sacrifices. They were offering in a shadow tabernacle for a shadow covenant. You see, Jesus is ministering true sacrifice himself in a true tabernacle for the truly better covenant. That's the first contrast. The second thing bounces off of this and, and really widens our view a little bit more. And it's this point that I've already made. The old covenant was a shadow, and now we get the answer. The new covenant is the substance casting that shadow. This is really verses one through five, okay? So, the old covenant shadow, it's kind of like this, uh, or, or me up here, right? You can see my shadow, or at least I can see my shadow. You can't see my shadow, right? Maybe you can. Uh, you see my shadow. There has to be a substance. If a shadow is cast, there has to be some substance by which is, is giving that a shadow, correct? Right? If I wasn't here, my shadow wouldn't be up here. That'd be real weird, okay? And y'all should run out of here like crazy, okay? Like, I am giving, I'm the substance to that shadow right there for the old covenant, what the Bible, what the whole Old Testament points to is in all these types, in all these ways. This is a shadow of the substance that's coming. That's what the Old Testament, that's what the Old Covenant is pointing to. You see, the Old Covenant was an earthly copy of something heavenly. 
And the, what's, what's interesting in Hebrews chapter 8 is the specific thing that it talks about is a shadow. And the repeated word over and over in Hebrews chapter 8 is the word tent. Did you notice that? Tent, like tent, in our ESV it says that. In some of your translations it's going to say tabernacle or temple. Same word, all right? And so it's saying this is a picture of a shadow that will give way to the substance, all right? And so I want you to think with me, and this is where we're going to see the whole arc of the old covenant to the new covenant through the lens of the temple, okay, that Hebrews 8 tells us to. The very first time we see God dwell with his people, right? When we think of the temple, what do you think of? Maybe you think of the tabernacle in the Old Testament and Exodus, probably that's what comes to mind. And what, what was there? Why was it so unique and special? That's where the presence of God was, right? Like that's, that's, where, that's where they would go in and do all those things. However, that's not the first time God dwells with his people, is it? Where's the first place in your Bible that God dwells with his people? Genesis 1. That's right. Thank you. The garden. So the garden, many scholars call it, is a garden temple. And what you see from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is this place where Adam and Eve are fellowshipping with God. He's dwelling with them. And what God is preaching ever since creation is this, that I'm a God who wants to inhabit and dwell with my people. But what happens? What happens? Yeah, Genesis 3 happens, right? Sin enters the world. But prior to Genesis 3 is Genesis 2. Isn't that fitting, right? And in Genesis 2, verse 15, I believe, Adam is given a command, right? And the command is this, to work and keep, right? Now go back to just the basic definition of the covenant. A formal relationship, partnership, to do what? Accomplish a goal. Now hear me, God is always the initiator. God is always the one initiating the covenant. However, this covenant God wants to partner with a people to accomplish his glory and his plan. That was what he was saying to Adam. Listen, I want you to accomplish my purpose in the garden and then Genesis 3. And that's fractured and that's splintered. And they're barred from this place, this temple, this garden, right? They're barred even from this purpose of accomplishing God's plan unhindered unless a sacrifice is pierced to shed blood. And this moves us into the second movement. Remember, we said covenant through the temple or tabernacle could describe the whole arc of scripture. This is now getting to the covenant or the tabernacle that you were thinking about. In Exodus, and this is found in Hebrews chapter 8 in verse 5. When God freed his people from slavery in Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai, Moses received the law, and on their way to the promised land, he also gave Moses instructions on the mountain. Look at it. What does he say in, in verse 5? He says, They serve as a copy and shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Now, here is the interesting thing. Okay, track with me. He said, We're going to the deep end. Okay, so track with me. What was the pattern that God gave Moses to construct the temple after? The garden. So you look at the lampstand in the temple. What does that represent? That represents the tree of life in the garden. You look at the things that filled the temple that Moses was to erect. It was all images from the garden, trees, flowers, pomegranates, all to evoke the glory of the garden. And further, the priests, this is found in, in 1 Chronicles uh, 23, the priests, guess what they were told to do in the temple? 
You got it. Same thing from Genesis 2. Work and keep. Work and keep. And so God has been preaching this whole time that he would dwell in the camp of his people, bring heaven down. But it required a sacrifice in priestly ministry. And if you've read any of your Old Testament, what happened? What happened with the people? Not our covenant-keeping God. He was faithful time and time again. But the people continued to sin and break the covenant. And so now fast-forwarding all the way through the Old Testament, we get to the part here that caused the Jews to stumble, that was folly to the Gentiles, but is the very glory of God, the living tabernacle. This is Jesus in John chapter 1, talking about John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is literally the word tabernacled. How many of you heard that before? He tabernacled among us, right? So we have this garden tabernacle, we have this old covenant tabernacle, and now Jesus comes on the scene, and what does it say about him? He himself becomes the living tabernacle. He becomes the way in which we have the presence of God among us, right? And we're going we're gonna to talk about this a little bit more uh, near the end. But this is how Jesus himself refers to himself. Uh, J- John chapter 2, verse 19, just a chapter later, here's what Jesus says about the temple, okay? And Jesus answers them and said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. This is chapter later. Jesus is going, destroy this temple. And, and this is what in actually Matthew chapter 26, they, are, they, they like condemn Jesus for. They're like, isn't this the guy who said that he was going to destroy the temple? Or the temple was going to be destroyed and raised up in three days? What was Jesus talking about there? Himself, the living temple, the living tabernacle, the new covenant is here. And it's going to be torn down, but it's going to raise again in three days. And it was. And so in his death, in burial, in resurrection, the Lord Jesus unites us to himself, brings us into union with the very tabernacle of his flesh. And then that's where we move to where we stand today. In Hebrews chapter 8, in the heavenly tabernacle, right? Jesus, the living tabernacle to whom we are united by faith, ascends to the holy of holies and sits down as the great king and high priest. And here's what the Bible says about us who are in him. We are united to him. We are actually, the Bible says, seated with him. Well, I'm pretty sure we're seated at the impact in some really uncomfortable wooden chairs, right? You see, the new covenant is better because it doesn't just stay on earth in form of a shadow, but comes down to us in Jesus, Emmanuel, right? And then brings us up by the power of the Holy Spirit. But the scene's not done, right? Because that still seems separated. See, this is where we go all the way to the end of the story. Revelation, right? You like how we just covered Genesis to Revelation in exactly nine minutes? You go to Revelation 21. And Revelation 21 is this prophetic vision where the bride of Christ, the people of God, are presented as an incredible, awesome city that descends from heaven to where? Earth. 
All right, Kyle, what's the point of all this? What is the point of all this? Here it is. It's that God is and has been from the very beginning in his garden temple in Eden, bringing his dwelling place down to be with us, to dwell with us. That's the story. You see, and in the old covenant, this was all presented in these little pictures, what I I described to you probably four or five weeks ago, called types, shadows. But the new covenant is the heavenly reality the old covenant was modeled on. You see, the old covenant was shadow. The new covenant is substance. Now, we are experts. Let me get really practical with you here for a second. We are experts. Like, we all have PhDs, okay, in turning shadows into substance, in making the shadows or the types, the things that we worship and bow down to, the things that we actually elevate as ultimate Even the last two things we talked about in our whole life discipleship series, money, right, and mammon, and and our bodies, right? Those are two things that God gifts or gives to us that so quickly we turn to be our own, right? Your body is not your own. It's bought with a price. It's the Lord's. It's his, right? The substance, the owner, the creator, he's the one that we worship, but the shadows, the things that point to him, the things that reveal him, we so quickly bow down to those things. And God's like, no, no, no. Stop bowing down to the gifts. Stop bowing down to the things that I have given, of you, given to you to show you and reflect who I am. You're missing it by worshiping the shadows. And that's what I feel like the urgency with the writer of Hebrews is going, no, don't go back to the shadows, right? Don't worship this shadow. No, worship the substance, right? Like I, I, I've used this example before. If I if I lose my kid, which may or may not have happened in a store, um, and I see their shadow, I don't go, found them, because I'm content with their shadow. No, I go, I saw their shadow, therefore, they must be around somewhere. But I am not content until I see and get a hold of what? My kid. The substance, right? And then I quickly discipline them and we go on. But um, that's the side point but you are not satisfied with the shadow. But if we really examine our hearts, maybe if we really look at our church, we're far too easily, we're far too easily satisfied with shadows. When the Lord's going, you're missing. You're missing me. You're missing my presence. You're missing the real thing, the the whole thing, and trading it for a shadow. Third, The third contrast, verses six and seven. The old covenant came with promises, but the new covenant came with better promises. And that seems like a childish way to say it, right? This came with promises. We have better promises, right? But that's what our word says. The word says that the new covenant in Christ makes better promises. Verses six and seven, I'll read it. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. There it is. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there, had been no, there would be no reason or occasion to look for a second. And that just makes logical sense to me, right? Like if, if, if the first or the old covenant, the original covenant, was good enough, why do you need a new one? Why would we need Christ? And the point of, of Hebrews is going, because the first one couldn't accomplish what Christ could only accomplish in himself. And see, the old covenant promises, here's what it promises, 
the coming of the Messiah in whom all nations will be blessed. That's what it promises. And here's the better promise. The new covenant actually provides that Messiah in blessing to all nations. That's why it's better. You see, the old one was pointing to him. In the new covenant, it is him. It is him. You see, why would Jeremiah 31 that he's quoting here in Hebrews 8 exist, or Ezekiel 36 exist and promise a new covenant if the old covenant was enough? And the answer, class, it wasn't enough. It was incomplete. And this is the fourth thing and where we'll land today, the fourth contrast. Where the old covenant condemned and revealed, the new covenant enables and overcomes. This is verses essentially 8 through 12. Where the old covenant condemned and revealed, the new covenant enables and overcomes. You see, at the center of these better promises was this great big promise from God that he would overcome the sinfulness of humanity that the old covenant could only reveal. That's at the heart of this better promise. You see, the old covenant contained this perfect law but it couldn't help anyone actually obey that law. James, it it talks about in in our New Testament, it talks about the Old Testament or the law of God being a mirror, right? That we look at and we go, how could I ever stack up? If that's what God requires, if that's the holiness, if that's the righteousness, how could I stack up to that? Maybe some of you, you look at the 10 commandments in the Old Testament and you're like, I'm pretty good. I haven't broken any of those. What happens when you go to Jesus' teaching with the Sermon on the Mount? You go over there, you're like, oh, Meanwhile, what I meant about those tears, I've broken every one of them this week, right? The law is a mirror. It condemns. It shows us that we are guilty in bright, flashing neon. Paul puts it like this. Get this, Paul, right? The apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians, New Testament, 2 Corinthians 3, 7. He calls it the ministry of death carved in letters of stone. That's... The old covenant. That's the language he's using for the old covenant. And you say, why would he use language like that? Because he wants to hold it up against the beauty of the new covenant. You see, the new covenant is better because the new covenant infuses that law, right? That ministry of death carved in stone tablets into the very hearts of its members. Did you see that in the middle of verse 10 in Hebrews 8? I will put my laws into their minds right? It says he'll put his, his laws into our minds, but what he does is then he writes them on their hearts. And this is just quoting uh, Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah. But this is the new covenant. The old covenant, stone tablets written on them. The new covenant, it's written on your heart by the Holy Spirit. Big difference. Big difference. Now, let me pause right here. Let me pause right here because there could be a tendency and I think even, even theologically, sometimes this is where it gets a little bit sideways, is that people would go, okay, why do we even, like, why do we need the Old Testament then? Like, why does it exist? What, 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 what good is the, the Old Covenant? Hear me, none of this is to say that the Old Covenant was bad. It wasn't. The problem with the Old Covenant was not the Old Covenant. The problem with the Old Covenant, guess what? Is the people under it. That's the problem with the old covenant. The new covenant is better because it transforms the people under it. How does the new covenant work? Let's think about this. Even from Ezekiel, right? He says, we have this heart of stone. 
And the new covenant comes in and says, I'm going to take, I'm literally going to punch into your chest and take out that heart of stone through the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ and place in you a beating heart of flesh, a new heart, a heart that has the very law of God that used to condemn you now written on it. That should just, you should just, You see, Jesus Christ overcomes our sinfulness by making us new men and women by his resurrecting grace. Not only does he forgive our sin, he also makes us a people who obey God's holy law from our hearts. Some of you have tried to obey God's holy law, but not from your heart. You've tried to obey it out of religious obligation or or out of duty or somehow like that's what's going to please God. No, what pleases God is Jesus. What pleases God is the sacrifice, the new covenant, what he arranged to be the satisfying work on your behalf and my behalf to take away our sin. That's what pleases God. And that's what he writes on our hearts. And when we understand that, then we want to press into him. Then we want to walk in the joy of his law. That it actually is, as the writer of Psalms would say, it's our delight and it's our joy. Why? Because we have a new heart. If I don't have a new heart, it's not a delight and joy. It's obligation and duty. And let me tell you where that gets you. Exhausted and anxious. And some of you are on that treadmill. Let me free you up this morning and say, that is not Christianity and that is not the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is this. Everything you couldn't accomplish, Jesus has accomplished. And every failure that you have failed in, Jesus has covered you. And when you put your whole faith and whole life and whole trust in him, it's his righteousness that covers you. It's his holiness. It's his spirit that comes into your heart and rewrites and writes a better story. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not our works. It's not what we do. You see, this is why none of this diminishes the old covenant. Not one bit does this talk diminish the old covenant. The new covenant does not destroy the old. It fulfills it, and it implants it in a people. And it does so, and this is verse 13, it does so permanently. Like we're not wondering, am I in or am I out? No, it writes it on our hearts, and it is there because the Spirit of God has done that. You see, the old covenant as a system vanishes away because it has been fulfilled and implanted into our hearts as God's new covenant people. That's who we are as a church. That's who you are in Christ. And this is why we would be a fool to trust in any home-brewed version of the old covenant you might try to cook up on your own. And just as we are experts in shadows, worshiping shadows, we're experts in wanting to return back to the law, return back to the old covenant, to go, yeah, 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 it's Jesus, it's the new covenant. But what we put right beside him is a big plus sign. Plus moralism, plus philanthropy, plus this or plus that. Yeah, maybe you're not going back to the dietary laws of Leviticus for your salvation, but we like to make up our our own version of the old covenant. And Jesus goes, I want you to walk in my freedom. I want you to walk in my true saving grace and mercy. And when you do, let me tell you, that transforms you because you have a new heart. You have a new letter that's been written on you. I I love where where Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians, where you're a living letter to be read by all. Listen, let me tell you what nobody wants to read. An old covenant letter, right? 
of legalism and do this and don't do that. Let me tell you what they want to read. They want to read a living letter, a life that declares the beauty and glory of Jesus. That I've tried my own ways of salvation. I've, I've tried to cook up my own versions of religion and, and all these other things, and they have failed me miserably. But then Jesus, but then Christ intersected my life and gave me a new heart in a new way. And now, a new covenant. And now, when I hear Jesus' word, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Love God. Love God with all that you are. Quickly follow it up by, and love your neighbor. Love those around you. I see the gospel in a whole new way. Because when I hear those words, you know what comes to my mind? This is, this is me. When I hear, love the Lord God with all that you are, and love those around you, I think of my failure. Anybody else? I think about how uh, not very well I do either of those. I think about how much I'm a work in progress. And here this week, um, as I studied this text, I had to share the gospel again with myself. And uh, through the lens of covenant. And I want to share it with you um, through this lens of Hebrews 8. Here's what Hebrews 8 is pointing to, and I would argue the whole of Scripture. That God is the one, you can put this up, Denise. Um, God is the one who shoulders the success of the covenant. He's the one who initiates. He's the one who fulfills. He's the one who makes it happen, not you. Genesis 15, it's, it's this moment where God is covenanting with Abram, who will be Abraham. And he asks Abraham to do all these things, and Abraham does all of them. He cuts them up, the animals, gets them all set into the covenant you're supposed to walk through. You know, you just make covenant walk through. Uh, read Genesis 15 um, this week. I'll tell you what happens to Abram. He's put asleep before he can walk through and fulfill this covenant. Like God's arranging all this. And I begin to think about that, and I'm like, wait a minute. What happened there? Here's our God. He doesn't make Abraham walk through that because he knows that Abraham cannot fulfill the covenant he's made, God's making with him. And so it says in Genesis 15 that this, this, pot, this fire, this, this presence of God, this glory of God walks through alone. Why? Because only God is able to succeed at the covenant he sets. Only God. He knew Abraham would fail. He knew he'd fail. But then what does Abraham do? He gets up. And he follows God. Jesus, God, very God, what does he do? He's the only one who can walk through the covenant. So not only, hear me, this is the second part of this. Not only does God shoulder the success of the covenant, he also shoulders the failure of those who will break the covenant. And that failure is placed on God himself in Jesus. So God is responsible for the success and then God also takes the weight of what? You and me in the failure of sin for us. And let me tell you, it all rests on him, and that is really good news. It's not resting on your performance or my performance. What part, Kyle, then do I play? You trust Jesus. 
you get up and you follow him. Jesus is the faithful man who submits himself to the Father and offers his life for you and me. Jesus is the faithful one who is, precise, who is precisely faithful in all the areas you and I have failed. Listen, in Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we move, yes, toward loving God and toward loving others with all that we are, but I know I'll fail. God knows that we will fail, yet apparently God loves us enough, even in our failure, to still cover us, to still be in covenant relationship with us. Why? Because the success and the covering of our failure ride on him. And so what he asks of us is this, do you trust me? Do you trust me? You see, this is what it means to be a Christian, to trust in the covenant-keeping love of God displayed through Jesus. Those top five words. I hope covenant will end up on that list for you because it's everything for us. Let me pray. Father, I, um, I thank you for your word that is alive and active. And God, I'm asking your Holy Spirit to move in us individually and corporately, to move us away from the, the tendencies to hear messages like this or read texts in our Bible like this and, and just believe that we need to perform better or we need to come up with a moral performance regimen. Oh God, forgive us for thinking that any of this rests on us. God, I thank you for the new covenant that was sealed by the blood of Jesus. That we take a meal to celebrate it. Father, I pray for those who God, when we talk about this love and this faithfulness on your end, Lord, they're just overwhelmed by their covenant failures. Lord, I pray that you might remind us of how loved we are, how your grace and mercy are new for us today. You might remind us of all those times in Scripture where you tell us, God, Romans 8 comes to mind. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. God, so I pray against shame that the enemy's voice might bring. Guilt, condemnation. Lord, that is not from you. So we might hear the better word this morning. That we're covered, that we're loved, that we are forgiven. Lord, I pray this morning for those who hear this text and feel helpless. God, because they've tried on their own. God, they've tried to manufacture salvation. They've tried to be moral enough to stack up to you. I pray that your spirit would draw them to Jesus this morning. God, and that this morning would be a day of salvation. God, that that woman or that man, that child, a student would hear the good news of Jesus this morning and see him for who he is. The mediator, the giver of the new covenant to us. 
the covenant breakers. Lord, I pray that this would capture our minds and our hearts as a community of faith. That even how we live in light of this text this week would be changed, it would be transformed. That there would be a generosity and a grace and a truth that saturates our our lives and our lips. Oh God, help us to not, help us to not just see these things, hear these things, be, be even like, God, entertained by your words, but not be changed. Lord, change us. Change us for your glory. Change us that we might be partners in the advancement of the gospel in this community, in this city, that our neighbors might see you. God, because of your covenant-keeping love, God, I pray that you would open the horizon of our eyes wide and far, that we might see your kingdom and your rule and your reign extends to all people. Your new covenant kicks down the dividing wall of hostility. So Lord, I pray that we would be faithful participants in your kingdom for your glory. Jesus, I love you. Thank you for a church that's willing to wade into these waters and think about you deeply, to love you more deeply for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.